Thank you for downloading our podcast. The prophet Hosea receives a strange command from the Lord. The Lord tells him to take a woman of the night to keep it clean for the pulpit. He is to marry a woman who does not protect the marriage bed, and he is to build a house with this unfaithful woman. How can the Lord order a prophet to do something contrary to his own will? What is the purpose of this book? Overall, what is the prophet Hosea teaching us today? Well, Hosea continues to prosecute a case against Israel with such deliberation and consistency that we almost just feel like saying we surrender, we get the point, we understand. And it's easy to sort of skim over the Word of God, and I think in America, and, and praise God, to an extent he's put us in this situation, that we have the Word of God so available. I mean, you go on BibleGateway.com, for instance, find all the different translations that you can read for free. And, and I say that's a blessing in the sense that we have a variety of the Word of God. I mean, it, it is very accessible to us. We can read this. We can study it. The downside is, when something becomes that accessible, we can cease to value its necessity. We can cease to value how important the Word of God is for us. And that's where it's important as we go through Hosea and we hear these reminders that our God is teaching us something in a very deliberate way. We are His people. And as we are His people, we need to listen to His warnings. Because as I mentioned in our reading of 1 Peter, we are a people like Israel outside the land in a wilderness experience with a lot of temptations around us. And we can read of those temptations even in the New Testament of, of being tempted to just give up the Christian life or to find comfort in something else or to find an identity in something other than Christ Jesus. And so when we hear these words from Hosea, Hopefully, this is starting, this is really hitting home, not in the sense that I hope we're not engaging in things that Hosea has warned Israel against. I hope we're not there. But at least that this encourages us and challenges us to think about our life in a very deliberate way in Christ Jesus. And so when I say that, there's another side where, where we can think of Hosea talking about Israel. We think about this being centuries ago, years ago, you know, maybe in our minds it's not really ancient history, but we can say, well, it's ancient history, it's just something that happened way back then, doesn't really matter, it's so old that it's not relevant. We can fall into that trap, but we shouldn't. And the other thing we can think is that here Hosea is just slandering the dead, right? These are people who have gone before us, or they're way back there, how is this even relevant today? And, and we shouldn't talk about the dead in a, in a bad sense. And so why is Hosea doing this? Why, why do we want this in the word of God? Because this is something that should weigh on us. God has put this in his canon of scripture. Which means that God wants us to know this history. He doesn't want it swept under the carpet. And so why is that the case? What's going on? Well, as you can tell from the title, my points are going to follow exactly what the title says. 
God's ravenous people, a flighty people, and a confused people, which is laying out who we are uh, if left to our own devices or if the Lord uh, releases his gracious hand from us. Let's let's begin with this ravenous people, looking at verses basically 3 through 7 in this section of Hosea. Now, ravenous people is not a, a very nice description always. I mean, sometimes maybe we've done something so physically intense. Maybe we've had a really hard day of labor and and we come in, we're just ravenous. We just feel like we can eat anything that's set before us because we're just that hungry. But ravenous in the sense of how we're using it and how Hosea is describing the Lord's people in this context is not positive. Because it's ravenous in the sense of pursuing sin and thinking that in the pursuit of sin one will find a satisfaction to their appetite. And the Lord's making clear to us that the problem with sin and addiction is that there's never any satisfaction in it. For, for however far you fall, you just want more. It becomes this, this appetite that's never, ever satisfied. And so when Hosea's talking and bringing this message to the people of God. He's saying to them that they burn with immorality, that that they just desire to, to sin and just commit sin and more sin and never give up on their sin. And so you hear this and you say, that's a pretty tragic commentary on God's people. And so we might say, well, how bad is it? Well, when we look at this, We find that by their evil, they make the king glad. Princes, by their treachery, in other words, by all their immoral things, their evil, their treachery, that the kings actually say this is a good thing. I mean, think about that for a moment. This is a nation that is supposed to be an example to the nations where people would look upon them and say, we want a God like the people of Israel. That's what we want. And here we see that they've truly become not only like the other nations, but worse than the other nations. Rather than celebrating the goodness of God, they celebrate the wickedness of the flesh in sin. And the kings endorse this. Notice he says they're all adulterers. This is universal. And so like we said at the beginning, remember Hosea didn't go out uh, to the underbelly of Israel and and try and find this this woman of the night. He just took a wife. And so this wasn't a commentary on all women being immoral. This was a commentary on what Israel's become. You could basically take any woman, any individual, and this would describe who they are. Those who are not committed to the marriage bed. Those who just pursue immorality. And so when he says they're they're all adulterers, he talks about the heated oven. Now when he talks about this oven, I'm sure we're aware of this. If we've gone camping or we've cooked over an open fire, a charcoal fire, uh, you know that there's a certain point where the fire is so intense, so hot, uh, that it will remove all the hair in your arms if you come close enough to it. You don't even have to touch the flame. And so that's the type of burning that he's speaking of with Israel. He's using this language of the bread and and goes on to speak of the unleavened bread, which I don't think is accidental. Because this too speaks of a distinctiveness of Israel. 
How was the nation of Israel constituted? When we think about the start and the inauguration of the people of God, we think of them under Exodus event, leaving Egypt after being enslaved for 400-some years, going through the Red Sea, the Lord crushing a, a mighty nation, showing his hand, showing his might, the unleavened bread was a continuing uh, feast that they were to engage in with Passover, commemorating their distinctiveness as a people of God. That in order for someone to be part of this meal, they had to be part of the covenant family. They, they weren't just individuals that, that would show up. This wasn't for everyone. And so as Hosea is calling this to our attention, it's important to remember these things. God called a distinctive people to be exclusive to him. As a husband is to be exclusive to his wife and a wife is to be exclusive to her husband. That's the relationship that's called to our attention here. But Israel has gone awry. They pursued whatever they've wanted. Now going on in verse 5, he mentions some sort of a, a festival that's going on. We don't know if this is a festival that Israel has come up with in its own understanding with the day of the king. It could be an anniversary of the king that the king would implement and institute year after year. It could be the inauguration of a king. Whatever the case, it's really irrelevant to what Hosea is saying. He wants us to get to the substance. The Israelites would know what he's talking about, but we can get the substance of the problem, can't we? That as the kings gather together, we find that there's two problems, aren't there? On the one hand, the kings give in to absolute drunkenness. They're, they're not self-controlled. They just get drunk and they become sick from, from the alcohol. We find something else. That, that is not that this is just a one-time misstep. It's not, you know, where, where maybe, you know, they confess that this is sinful. They shouldn't be doing this. We find who they commune with that they commune with the mockers, the scoffers, those in wisdom literature who mock the purpose of God. So when we look at this combination, there, there's no understanding that even this festival, most likely a celebration of who the king is, notice the celebration of the king, not the true king, God himself, that they make this a party. And they fellowship with those who are immoral, who stand against the Lord consciously. And so you, you think about the, the reality of this, and, and you hear this and you say, this is a tragedy. The people of God have really lost their way. Going on then, when we find this, these verses in verses 6 and 7, these aren't kind of self-explanatory verses, but it, again, it describes sin. And it describes a, the reality of, of how they are like that hot oven that blazes, that burns. And so it is in their anger. It, it, it's not an anger like David calling out to God saying, why are my enemies coming against me? Why does it seem the enemies are prospering? Where are you, O God? Right? A, a wonder and, and a calling out to God. No. This is seizing more power. This is not trying to submit to the Lord. It's giving in to their anger. Notice that in verse 7, what's happening in the people of Israel, that they're not finding any celebration. We, we think of the, the situation as we've 
mentioned before with the series of uh, executions and assassinations that happen with the different political conspiracies that we read in 2 Kings 15 through 17, and we find this scenario. That's what's going on. King rises, people are upset, they destroy him. King rises, they're upset, they destroy him. You think of David and Saul and how far Israel has come. That David himself doesn't even want to take Saul's life when he has an opportunity. He's not going to slay the Lord's anointed. But here, it's one king wants power over another king, so he just takes it, just like the world does. There's no understanding. And, and notice the tragedy. It, it sort of echoes the book of Judges that ends with the Levite and the concubine, as we've made reference and we've seen that illusion that Hosea makes. The book of Judges where Israel does evil in the sight of the Lord and then they call out, right? And that's the ideal. But we find by Samson, they're, they're not calling out anymore. They stop calling out to God. But yet the Lord still shows mercy and delivers them. Here we find in verse 7, as we conclude this, this brief section of this prophecy here, that the Lord just says, none of them call out to me. They're upset with the leadership. And he's saying there's, there's validity to be upset with the leadership. But they're not calling out to me. In other words, they're upset with the leadership for the wrong reason. So one can be upset, and maybe there's a legitimate reason to be upset. But they're upset because the leadership's not doing what they want to do. In other words, doing what the Lord desires for them to do. And so Hosea, right here in verse 7, ends with this tragedy. That the people of God have this ravenous desire. They're, they're not fulfilled. Uh, they're looking to the wrong things, sort of in summary, as we set the stage here. They're not looking to the Lord. They're not calling out to God. They're not understanding they're distinctive as the Lord's covenant people and called to honor him. And so it gets worse. What do we find in verses 8 through 12? Well, we find now that they're a flighty people. We have Ephraim then being mixed up, mixes himself with the peoples. And so Hosea still seems to be using the metaphor of the churning of the bread, the making of the bread, uh, the oven, and these sorts of things. And as they're mixing with the people, this is telling us again a problem. Because as, as we think back to the Exodus, as we recalled in our first point, that was an event that called Israel to see their exclusive relationship to the one true God. Now they're mixed up. Now when they're mixed up, we, we think of this also echoing the people of Babel. As they come together in the gateway to the gods and they're going to pierce into the fortress of heaven and bring God down and lead God around like a little puppy dog and domesticate him. Only we find that the Lord mixes up their language, and they become a mixed-up people. Well, now Israel has become like the people of Babel, a people called out of Egypt, a people who were distinctive, a people who had a feast calling to their attention the exclusiveness they're, they're to have with the Lord God and no other God. But here they go, mixing it up with everyone else. We find as it goes on who they are. He speaks of Ephraim, being like a, a dove. Now this dove language, as he lays this out, is what we've seen already uh, with 
Jonah's. Jonah's name literally means dove. He's one that goes and, and flies and flutters around. They're, they're sort of, it's a silly bird, right? It's not a bird that truly desires uh, to honor the, the Lord God. And as it flutters around, it's going between Egypt, it's going between Assyria like Jonah. I'm going to bring the message of the gospel. I'm, I'm not going to bring the message of the gospel. I, I don't want to give in to God, but I'm one who now I'm going to say a pious prayer when I'm swallowed in the belly of the sea, and then the Lord vomits him out. That's who Israel has become. But you see, prior to this, as Israel is, is you know, flighty in this sense, going around like a dove that's not gracious, sort of irrational, that the Lord points out sort of a, a comical situation. That you have Ephraim here not only mixing with people, but you have the strangers devouring his strength. Now the, the presentation here in the metaphor is, is sort of the Lord lightening up the, the depth of, of how dark this is. And he's making light of it. And, and it's funny until you realize he's talking about his people. And then you kind of go, hey, wait a minute. This, this could be me. But the reality of what the Lord's saying is it's, it's Israel having their strength. So verse 9 where it says strangers devour their strength. This is Israel basically having their field and, and their livelihood is going to be their harvest. So they, they come to harvest and the middle of the field is cut out. And, and Israel doesn't process the the reality of the middle of the field being cut out they just harvest the field and and anyone who is experienced with this would think well if you're missing half your field you'd probably want to investigate what happened wouldn't you but Israel just goes about their business a, a way of putting this maybe in our contemporary circles if we're not farmers would be uh, we we go to the grocery store every week we know how many groceries we have, and we just understand this is what, it, what we stock the fridge with. Well, all of a sudden, we're going through three times the amount of groceries every week, and instead of wondering, well, is somebody coming in through a window? Are we not locking the door? Is somebody raiding the fridge? We just go to the grocery store and just buy more groceries, right? And so you sort of chuckle at this and say, anyone who is tuned in to, to life would at some point investigate why this is happening. What's going on? And he's saying, this is what Ephraim has become. And we find two times in verse 9, he knows it not. He knows it not. In other words, there are things that are so blatantly obvious in the face of Ephraim that anyone who is awake would understand this is a problem, we need to figure out what happened, and we need to investigate this. Ephraim just goes about life, has no reflection at all about what's going on. And so the Lord is saying that's how bad of an image this is. Ephraim, like the dove, fluttering around like no sense, just fluttering around making no, making no sense of life. And what's the Lord going to do? Well, the Lord says, I'm going to spread my net over him. So now the Lord, like the fowler, the, the trapper of birds, is, is going to trap Ephraim. Is going to, to bring them down. And he's going to discipline Ephraim. Now again, when we think about this discipline, we, 
we might wonder, well, isn't the Lord being cruel in this? I mean, uh, as the Lord is, is doing this, doesn't this just, just seem mean that, that the Lord's just going to discipline them in, in, in this way? Well, the reality is, remember what we said about discipline. The Lord, as he disciplines, is not doing it necessarily to destroy us. That's not the purpose of the Lord's discipline, is it? Now we do read in Corinthians that there's some who have died early, but why? Because as the Lord is disciplining his people, he's doing it so they come back, isn't he? He's doing it so they're restrained, so they don't continue to go down the course that they are going. And he's saying this is the reality of where Israel's going. I will discipline them. In fact, as he disciplines them, why is he doing this? Because Israel is so clueless, they don't understand, say, verse 11, who gets the last laugh. Egypt, Assyria. We're going to go to Egypt. We're going to go to Assyria. We're going to go to Egypt. We're going to go to Assyria. Not thinking about the Lord. And so the Lord has to cast his net. The Lord has to restrain them. Because if they continue along this course of life, this is going to be the ultimate self-destructive course. There is no hope for them if they continue in this direction. And so the Lord is saying, when the exile takes place and you are kicked out of the land, do not be alarmed. This is what I am doing for your good, to reshape you, reform you, remold you, as we've seen as a theme in Scripture with a wilderness or, or an uh, exile motif. And so this, this people have gone. They are flighty, going between nations, mixing with other people, not truly wanting to be exclusive to the Lord himself. But then going on, we find in verses 13 through 16 now, we have that they are truly a confused people. Because the Lord says woe to them. Once again, we have when the prophets say woe, it, it means you better be attentive uh, because something bad's about to happen. And sure enough, we find that there's an internal dialogue that we have with the Lord again. They've run away. They brought about destruction. They've rebelled, right? A theme we see with Israel and the Lord's people. The Lord says, I would redeem them. And so the, the Lord's not saying that they're beyond redemption. I, I would redeem them, but we find why not now. But they speak lies against me. And we say, well, what, what are these lies that they're speaking against God? Well, when we think about the context of Hosea, they've worshipped false gods, and we see that here with Israel tuning in and, and worshiping false things and giving in to false identities. So it's worshiping false gods. Uh, they're not crying out to, to God. They gash themselves, as we find in verse 14, most likely referring to Baal worship. And they also are those who speak lies of God because they're going to Egypt and Assyria. They don't see the Lord as their shield and defender. He's not even on their radar. It's the nations around them that they can form an alliance with that will ultimately deliver them. Not the Lord. The Lord's not the Redeemer. It's the other nations. And so Hosea is saying they're, they're speaking lies about me. They're redefining worship. They're redefining what it means to follow me. They're, they're redefining redemption and deliverance and they're not understanding. Egypt was a nation that enslaved them. I redeemed them. They're not coming to me. 
And so they are those who are not turning to the Lord. We find then as it goes on that they're not crying to him. They continue to act out in a way in verse 15 that seems they're trying to get Baal's attention. Going on, verse 15, he trained them. What does it mean that the Lord trains them? Well, what it means is that the Lord has led them through the wilderness, hasn't he? The Lord has disciplined them. The Lord has shown them again and again and called to their attention his faithfulness. The Lord has trained them up to look upon him again and again. He has strengthened them. Doesn't he call to their attention? You wander the wilderness for 40 years. Well, what did you need in that time? Did I not provide it? Even your sandals didn't wear out, right? The Lord calls to their attention. I've, I've shown you who I am. I have trained you to depend on me. Going into the land, you should have been tuned into the reality that I am the provider. I am the shield and defender is what the Lord is saying. But how does Israel thank God? Again, by calling to their attention, devising evil against the Lord. And so as they do this, they're, they're people that are, again, not really understanding who God is. Notice as the Lord goes on, not only as he strengthens them, he says they, they return, but not upward. So remember we talked about Gomer saying, maybe I should return back to my lover. In other words, it wasn't, I really need to think about the implications of marriage as the Lord has instituted them. I really need to repent and return to the Lord and change my ways. I really need to, from the heart, be tuned into the purpose of God and seeking to live unto him. No. As you know, it was kind of easier with him. Uh, the, being the lady of the night's not so enjoyable anymore. Being with, with him what, what was more consistent. Maybe, maybe I should just turn to him. So in other words, what Israel is doing is they're basically laying out the pros and cons of following God. You know, the pro, it seems to be an easier life. A con, well, this sin thing isn't so fun anymore. But maybe some of the sin things are fun, and, and so maybe we, we don't want to turn to God. So in other words, it's Israel as a dove being confused, not truly wanting to turn to the Lord with a whole commitment of understanding that God is the one who is a great provider. And so this treacherous bow is what they're like. Now this, uh, we kind of get a, a sense of this uh, from Psalm 78, 57, where it's basically, it's a bow that appears in its form able to go to war, but it's not really strung tight enough. So when you pull back on the bow and you go to shoot the arrow, it's a deceptive bow. You, you think that it's going to hit the target, but there's not enough pressure in the string to pull the arrow back far enough to be accurate or to kill the target that you aim it at. And so he's saying that's what Israel is in their repentance. They appear to be this bow that's ready for war, ready for action. But at the end of the day, it's not. It's not at all. It's not going to shoot accurate. It's not going to be able to hit the mark. It's not going to be on target. And that's who Israel has become, or has become. And so he says, because of who they are, how they speak, what they say about the Lord, they're going to truly bear the consequence 
of these actions. They will be cut out of the land and experience the discipline of God. And so we hear this, and we're again left with that question. What, what do we make of this? What, what do we do with Israel's failing? Why, why slander the dead and, and keep this in the canon of Scripture? It's because the Lord wants us to know who we are potentially. He wants us to see the reality of who we are. It's not to shame or harm his people. It's a call to our attention to reality that apart from Christ, we have nothing. Apart from life in him, we have nothing. And our propensity, as we read through this, is to understand that we're going to trust in what our eyes see, Egypt, Assyria, whatever that may be. And we're going to trust in them being our ultimate shield and defender and redeemer. And the Lord's calling to our attention, who is the one who brings true life? Only the Lord himself. Only Christ Jesus. And it's a call for us to understand that we don't stand above Israel in the sense that we mock them or we say, wow, I can't believe those people did those sorts of things. But it's having the humility that apart from the grace of God, we can fall into these same things. When we think about what we heard in the canons of Dort, remember we looked at Head 5, and we think about the Lord handing us over to our sin for a time. That's what Hosea is driving home to us. We keep bucking against God, keep pushing against Him, keep trying to pursue things that will bring us joy other than Him. The Lord may one day say, here you go. Enjoy it. See where this brings you. And this is where you think about that, that appetite that's never, ever satisfied. It's never filled. There's no joy. One just wants more and more and more and more without any fulfillment or contentment. And so the Lord is saying, if I bring you to that place, where do you find your joy? We find our joy in knowing that life Fulfillment, contentment is only found in our Lord. And so as our Lord has strengthened our arm, as the Lord has disciplined us, maybe in the church, maybe by his providence, maybe as he has shepherded us through different seasons of life, the Lord has always been there. Our temptation is to think, where is God in the midst of this? The Lord is right there doing exactly what he desires to do, bringing us to the place where he wants us to be. And the call is for us to continue to take hold of our Redeemer, seeing that our life is only found in Christ, and to understand that our redemptive event is greater than the Exodus event. That's a model, that's a, that's a type, that's a picture. We are truly grounded in the faithful Son of God who has moved from death to life, and he has passed through the waters of hell, and he has emerged triumphant. Let us not see ourselves as a defeated people, no matter what we face in our lives. Let us not be a people look down on Israel. Let us hear Hosea, but let us also be a people who truly pursue our God, not returning in a half-hearted way, but truly from the heart, desiring to conform to our Lord, 
knowing that life is only found in Christ. And as we are found in Christ, there is ultimately nothing in this age that we have to fear. Because as hell itself has even been conquered in our place, we serve a greater redeemer than even Joshua himself. Let us then proceed in the confidence that all that we need is truly found in our Redeemer and our Lord. Let us live in light of that and out of joy and gratitude as living sacrifices to our Lord and Savior. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We hope that you were edified and encouraged this gospel message. Belgrade URC is a Reformed Bible-believing confessional church that is based in Belgrade, Montana. Please visit our webpage, urcbelgrade.com, that is urcbelgrade.com, to find out more information about our church and utilize our sermon archive. Most of all, we hope to see you sojourning and fellowshipping with us each Sunday. Until we meet again, may the Lord's blessing and peace be upon you.